Chicas underway here on ESPN Plus and ESPN Caribbean alongside Hercules Gomez. I'm Sebastian Salazar for episode 313 of this show and a very special edition, Herc, of Football Americas. As you can tell, we are festively dressed. It is the first right. of our holiday specials. What are you wearing over there? Uh, this little something. Look at this. Merry Klopmas. Okay. How about I didn't you? know you were a Liverpool guy. I'm not. I'm a Jurgen Klopp guy. This is a little 1994 denim Dortmund flashback. Years. The oversized oh, sweater. Or, okay, you like okay, that? Sebby. Okay, Seb. Okay, Seb. <laughs> Everything is oversized on Seb. <laughs> okay, all right. Don't, don't steal producer Beto's lines, Herc. We all know you're not creative enough to come up with it on your own. All right, so today we're going to be looking back uh, at some of the top storylines, Herc, from the 2022 World Cup and how they've evolved or how they've changed in the year on. It's crazy to think. It was right around this time last year we were shaking off kind of the, the, the jet lag of our flight back from Doha, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We were in Qatar. Uh, crazy, crazy time in Qatar. Honestly, I enjoyed myself. It was a great World Cup. A lot mm -hmm. of fun stuff. So, yeah, it's crazy. 35 it's been a year. days together. 35 days together abroad. And look at this. A year later, Herc, here we are still uh, working together. We are, of course, going to focus on the CONCACAF angles at the World Cup. U.S., Mexico, Canada, etc. But it's probably appropriate, Herc, to start with the story of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. And that's Lionel Messi, who after a decades-long pursuit finally captured the one trophy that had eluded him uh, as Argentina won the World Cup for a third time. And Herc, one year later, he's playing in Major League Soccer for Inter-Miami, just as you expected, right? Just as everybody expected, winning the, winning the Ballon d'Or, excuse me, uh, as an Inter-Miami player. And when you're talking about the one trophy that uh, was missing, I thought you were talking about the League's Cup. Um, <laughs> listen, you, you can't write this up. It, the, everything about this is quintessential Messi. Uh, just, if you know the Messi story, you know about Messi going to La Masia, the, the Barcelona-famed academy, signing everything on, signing his contract on a, a paper napkin, if you will, and how everything turned out to win the World World Cup and have his fairy tale ending because yes, going to Major League Soccer is the ending for Lionel Messi. Having that fairy tale ending in the States, in America, in Miami with the worst team in the league. Do you remember how bad Miami was mm. before Messi got there? And then all of a sudden, single-handedly driving that team to win the first trophy in their history. It, it's picturesque. It, it's a movie. It's Hollywood-esque, if you will. It seems very appropriate that here we are a year later talking about it the way we will. Yeah, and it was the moments too, right? Of course, you know, lifting the League's Cup against Nashville, great moment. If you want to go to the Open Cup semifinal against FC Cincinnati, dramatic comeback. But literally, Herc, I mean, his first game with Inter-Miami against Cruz Azul in League's Cup, it's not just an amazing free kick. It's an amazing free kick in that moment with that much pressure to give them a victory in a game that they really needed to kind of launch that run in League's Cup and to capture the momentum of that moment. That was the viral explosion that MLS desperately wanted when they signed this guy. And for him to deliver it, Herc, half an hour into his debut uh, was really remarkable. We knew Lionel Messi coming to Inter-Miami was going to be a success, any way you measured it. But I don't think any of us really thought that he would turn this team around as quickly as he did and give us those viral moments within a half hour. 
No. I mean, even by the incredible expectations he sets, I think he surpassed them. That's fair because the expectations that he sets, he surpassed. L listen, we were, I remember like it was yesterday, we were sitting here, can a guy who four days ago got off a plane from the Bahamas when he was sipping for the last 10, mm -hmm. 10 weeks, or excuse me, 10 days, two weeks, uh, you know, Mai Tais with his wife and hanging out with his kids, swimming with the little piggies and whatnot that they have over there. Can he in three days be fit enough to, to play, uh, be fit enough to do what Messi has always done. And he pretty much proves it in half an hour that he still has. It's a walk-off free kick. It, it, it was one of those buzzer beaters, if you will. I know I'm using American terminology here, but that's what it felt like. It felt like you were watching a, a, a buzzer beater in a basketball game or a Hail Mary in a football game. It's messy with a free kick that should be automatic. It's like a penalty kick mm. for him. And he puts it away in the most dramatic of ways. And that was just the beginning because everything he did from there, you know, forward, going forward, was just as dramatic. The comeback you already mentioned uh, against uh, Cincinnati, the comeback, like you mentioned, uh, against um, Nashville. Everything was even more dramatic. I don't think anybody could have predicted the success that Lionel Messi had with Inter-Miami. Yeah, and it's not just Messi, right? He, he showed up, and he's the guy, but he brought along with him Sergio Busquets, then along comes Jordi Alba. The team also made some kind of smart Come signings. Come on, he brought with him a coach. Like, who has that kind of power? He brought with him a coach, Seb. He changed okay. the fortune of that team. And he, and he did, and what I'm, what I'm going to ask you next is how much do you think that can carry over into 2024? Because we had a big conversation. Could, could they make an amazing, what would have effectively been a miracle run to make the playoffs? I got to think if the Inter-Miami that we saw in League's Cup, and even in some of the MLS games, shows up for a full MLS season, granted there's a Copa America, granted that, that Messi's focus may be with Argentina, I got to think they're going to be, if not the best team in the league, Herc, Really, really close next year. Yeah, how many players did you know under Miami before Messi got there? Did you really know? Did you, you, you knew their names. DeAndre Yedlin. DeAndre Good Yedlin. Good friend of the show. Right, right. Did, yeah. was, was Benjamin Kramaski a, a known no. player? No. Drake Callender, no. No, yeah. no, no. Drake Callender. Effecto Calendar, Messi. There you go. Effecto Messi. And that's what it is. All of a sudden, these players are put on a different platform, if you will, and they're very good players who get to showcase themselves and they're thrust into the national spotlight, international spotlight, because the world is watching. Well, that's the Messi effect. Can they sustain it? Do you know how many players are going to play alongside Messi now? Are mm. going to play being coached by Tata Martina, uh, Martino? Uh, we're going to play in this uh, Messi and friends, if you will, with Busquets, Jordi Alba, uh, Luis Suarez, uh, if you will. Uh, it's going to continue as long as Messi's there. Messi wins the World Cup in 2022, wins League Cup in 2023. Who knows what will wait for him uh, in 2024. All right, up next on our one-year look back at the Qatar World Cup, the U.S. men's national team managerial position, which this time last year, uh, as it is currently, was held by Greg Berhalter. Although a year ago, if I would have told you that Berhalter was still in charge, you might have believed me. But not Herc if I told you how. Of course, that is uh, a scandal involving one of his best players and that player's family. That scandal involved an admission from Greg Berhalter himself of domestic violence. On top of that, it wasn't the old sporting director that hired him. Ernie Stewart gone, uh, in comes Matt Crocker, and yet Greg Berhalter is still the U.S. men's national team manager. Uh, Herc, I remember that night vividly. In Las Vegas, CONCACAF Nations League semifinals, USA against Mexico, U.S. pace Mexico 3-0, and yet when you signed online, listening to the kind of heartbeat of American fandom, you would have thought that the U.S. program was in a moment of crisis uh, just because Burhalter had been re-signed by U.S. soccer. It was really a remarkable moment. 
they dropped the bomb. We were inside Allegiant Stadium, the Raiders Stadium, Las Vegas, you know, uh, for the Nations League semifinal. It wasn't even the final, it was a semifinal, and it was about mm -hmm. two minutes before kickoff when news had hit, when Paul Gennario of The Athletic breaks the news that Greg Berhalter is back as the U.S. men's national team coach. That, that's who Matt Crocker hired. That after this extensive search, Seb, worldwide search, where you spend tons of money, resources, and time, you come back to the guy who was already there. You come back to the guy who would have been very easy to move on from. So it was a bomb. I remember so that certain players on the team had no idea. And when they were asked about it in the mix zone, you can see the reaction. You can literally see the blood rushing down their face or draining from their head. It's one of these things that I will never forget. And it was a reaction also online, and there's good reason for it. I mentioned the search. I mentioned Matt Crocker. I mentioned the names that were, I didn't mention the names that were available, but there were names like Jesse Marsh. There were names um, like Patrick Vieira. There were, there were some big names on there, and you come back to the guy you already had. So for good reason, uh, social media was ablaze. Yeah. I think when we wrapped up our coverage of the World Cup in Doha, you know, this time last year, maybe about a week ago this time last year, there was a sense that Greg Berhalter could come back, right? I don't think it was beyond the realm of possibility. The team had done well enough. They'd gotten out of a, a, a group. They'd gotten to the round of 16. Sure, they got beat by Netherlands. But I think there was a sense that by U.S. soccer standards, we might see them come back. In fact, I even remember a conversation I had with one of the decision makers at U.S. Soccer in New York City before we all left for the World Cup. And they told me that it wasn't even a necessity for Berhalter to get out of the group phase, right? That's that's kind of how much faith they had in this guy, that it would depend on what happened. Even if they got, you know, bounced in the group phase, he might still come back. He does more than that. Yeah. So I think at that point you started to think, all right, like it's pretty clear there's a very good chance that he comes back. And then the Reina thing happened. Right, And then we find out about him telling the story about Gio Reyna and the conference, and that kind of blows up in his face. At that point, Herc, that's when I thought, all right, now it's better for pretty much everybody here, including Greg Berhalter, to walk away. And if you remember, there was a moment he was linked with the Club America job in the week before he took the U.S. men's national team job. I mean, it was a really kind of crazy week and a half there, if you think about the sliding doors moment we might have had in North American soccer. Massive moment, and who knows how much of a, how much reality there is to the fact that Club America is about to make him uh, their next coach. But when you look at who Club America went for, Jardine, who was arguably the fifth or sixth coach, you think the realm of possibility was there. But I agree with you. There was a time where, right after the World Cup ended, you thought this was going to be an automatic thing. Greg Berhalter would get a second term. And then news comes out of what happened with Gio Reyna. News comes out of what he said in the conference with Gio Reyna. News comes out of Greg Berhalter himself trying to get ahead of things and admitting to an incident with his wife uh, from years ago. And you're like, there's no way he comes back from. There's no way that U.S. soccer backs him, that Matt Crocker thinks he's the guy. Not because he, for a second, leave if he's capable or not out of this, just because it's easier to move on from all this. And that's, to me, what is the most pressing thing here. It was easier to move on. U.S. soccer, Matt Crocker did the hard thing by sticking with Greg Berhalter. So that's the one thing that I still to this day can't wrap my head around. Yeah. Not, not the fact that he was capable or not. Yeah, Clearly, uh, they weren't ready to move on. And I, I wonder how easy it's going to be for them to move on generally. You know, Crocker's called him a legacy coach. You don't move on easily right 
from a legacy coach, a guy that you're giving now two World Cup cycles to, uh, including a, a World Cup at home. They put a lot of faith in Greg Berhalter when it comes to this program. So uh, very interesting to see what happens in 2024, which we know is going to be a huge, huge year for U.S. soccer. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. What about U.S. soccer's rivals south of the border, Herc, Mexico? While the U.S. had the same manager now as they did a year ago, Mexico has had three different managers uh, since the World Cup. Tata Martino, of course, uh, followed by Diego Coca very briefly, and then Jimmy Lozano, who took over as an interim before getting the job. A full time. Perk, between the two federations, and really what I'm talking about here is the two fan bases. Yeah. Uh, who do you think feels better about who they have managing their national team? Uh, Mexico fans or U.S. fans? It's a tough one because social media is not the real world. Let me just sure. say that, okay? There's, there's a sector, sector of social media where Greg Berhalter's persona non grata. There's a sector of social media that thinks Greg Berhalter can t- turn things around. There's a sector of, uh, of just general or social media that doesn't care about these type of things um the fan base in general i think with the coaching hire or who they have leading the helm will feel better on the mexican side and Mm. what i mean by that is you look at the mexican fan base the mexican fan base knows the limitations of the player pool they they know that it's, it's 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 business as usual when it comes to mexican football that players aren't exported they know that there's an inflated market there they know of the hardships with Tata Martino. They, they know how dire the situation was with a Diego Coca. They know of the uh, inferiority complex that Mexican officials have, the Federation. They know all these problems. They needed hope. They wanted hope. Guess who peddles hope better than anybody else? It's, it's Jimmy Lozano. And in Jimmy Lozano, you have a young why? coach. Why? Because he's born in Mexico? That's one of the reasons. Is that, is that why? Is that why he peddles hope? Is that why his message is received just because he's born in Mexico? No, is that the bottom let, line? Let me ask you a question. When's the last time Mexican soccer had something to smile about? Whew. It's been a while. Now, if you're going to tell me that, that Jimmy Lozano and the CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinals against Honduras are something hold, to smile on. about, I'm going to throw on. that right back in your face. Hold huh? on, hold on That's for the a first second. competitive games that Jimmy hold Lozano has had. Hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. I didn't time feel really good game. after the first leg in Honduras. When's the last time that Mexico had something to smile about? Think about this for a second, okay? You got to go back the to Germany, the, the Germany draw. Well, no, no. Well, official game. That's, that's okay. But you got to go back to, to the Olympic Games. You got to go back to the bronze medal and that showing and them losing on penalty kicks, right? You, they, they felt good about the situation. They, they felt like they were back. Jimmy Lozano was the head coach for that team. Jimmy Lozano, if you're looking for promise, if you're looking for mm. a generational shift, who was with that generational shift? Who was with that promise? It's Jimmy Lozano. And yes, being a Mexican national, uh, being a guy who's been there, done that, uh, with, the, with the youth national team, if you will, because it's a U23 tournament, that was important to him. And I agree, Honduras was not what Jimmy Lozano wanted or the Mexican national team. But before Honduras, before Honduras do you remember the, how they played against Germany? They had something to smile about. Now, the other side, the U.S. fan base under Greg Berhalter, all they're hearing now is what you and I have been saying for the better part of 
two years. Where are the big wins for the U.S. men's national team? That, he, that seems to be a trending topic today, a hot-button thing. But, Seb, we were saying this how long ago? Where is the signature win for Greg Berhalter? They played against the same opponents. They played against Germany as well. What happened when they played against Germany that friendly? Mm. They got played off the field. They know they can beat Mexico. They know they can beat this version of Mexico, this pool of Mexico, the, the, the worst pool of Mexican players that I've seen in my lifetime. They know mm. that. They want the big wins. They don't want a 1-1-1 one, one, and, one and out in World Cup play. Boy, I don't, think, I don't think U.S. fans feel great about Greg Berhalter, but I think they probably feel better than Mexico fans feel about Jimmy Lozano. I will fully admit, Herc, that there's a little feel-good vibe that people picked up around the Gold Cup because he beat a bunch of B teams. But that was basically all the data that was used to hire this guy. And then, in the first competitive games against Honduras, they, they, they played terribly in that first leg. And if not for a little extra time in the Mexican capital and maybe some luck and maybe some refereeing help, you know, Mexico is, is 90 minutes away from missing on Copa America. And we're having a totally different conversation about Jimmy Lozano uh, and whether sh he should be around. Listen, the U.S. against Trinidad and Tobago, say what you will, Herc, they didn't suffer. They didn't struggle. The what? biggest issue around, please, it was over after the first leg. There was never a sweat for the United States. Sergio Even with the Sergio Des 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 red, red card. card. And honestly, there was never a sweat. Trinidad was never within three goals of knocking the you're, US you're, out. Did you not watch the same game we did that return leg? If they have better finishing, that's oh, a yeah, different story. Oh, yeah, US was a lot more nervous than Mexico. Yeah, oh, yeah, boy. They really Seb. sweated out that quarterfinal. Please. Seb, that's, please. Not, that's not what you said. Don't move the goalpost. Don't move the goalpost, please. That's not what you said. I, I agree with everything you're saying, okay? But when when it comes to the fan base, when it comes to the manager, mm -hmm. I don't know because it really is a situation where both fan bases, just in general, don't feel good about the situation. I shouldn't say in general because the U.S. fan base, I think okay. they feel very good about the pool. But when it comes to the coach, I think it is much more split when it comes to the U.S. men's national team. Mm. All right. Well, one thing I would say is that the, the biggest thing for, for Burhalter was Gio Reyna. And so far, so far, that relationship seems to have been as mended as it can be mended. Uh, and they seem to be working well. Uh, at the international level with the United States. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. Look, Herc, what would a uh, World Cup special be without a segment on snubs? All right, and we got two pretty obvious ones from our region when we look back at the last World Cup. For the United States, Ricardo Pepe. For Mexico, Santiago Jimenez. Looking back a year later, Herc, who do you think between these two was the bigger World Cup snub? Fantastic players, both of them, right? And we're splitting hairs, really. But when you talk about World Cup snubs, it has to be Ricardo Pepe. Don't think about the form today, though that plays a major factor in this. It really does. It really does. But Santiago Jimenez wasn't a big player for the U.S. men's, or excuse me, for the Mexican national team. He wasn't a player that was participating heavily. Ricardo Pepe was the only man on the U.S. men's national team to score more goals than him in World Cup qualifying was Christian Pulisic, who's the face of the U.S. men's national team. Ricardo Pepe at one point saved Greg Berhalter's job. He was a shoo-in. You thought if there was one player 
Okay, and that, and that offensive line out of those three forwards that Gregor Berhalter would have taken, it would have been Ricardo Pepe, and it wasn't. And him not going to the World Cup, and us seeing how the rest of the other nines did, which I don't think was too bad, okay? But you saw how Ricardo Pepe heated up during that World Cup time, right mm -hmm. around there with, uh, with um, oh, the team from uh, Holland. The Grabschaft. No, uh, Groningen. Groningen. Groningen, thank you. How he heated up with Groningen, and how he's doing now today, and how important he is, and, and how big he's been as a player for the U.S. Men's National Team. You just have to think, what if? What if, what if, what if? And that's why he's, he's the biggest nub out of the two. The uh, turnover in the U.S. striker pool, Herc, is just remarkable. The, the World Cup strikers are Haji Wright, Josh Sargent, yes. Jesus Ferreira. Jesus Ferreira was a starting striker at the World Cup for the U.S. men's national team. Um, even, even Jordan Pifak, a guy who was kind of a snub, uh, is all but removed from the picture. Maybe Sargent of those guys is the only one that's left, but it's yeah. really uh, Balogun and Pepe now. So, yeah, man, it's, it's crazy to think how much the panorama of U.S. strikers has changed in 12 months. It's not just Pepe, right? It's not, and, and you mentioned, and you mentioned uh, Jesus Ferreira. Jesus Ferreira started arguably the, the most important game of that World Cup with the U.S. men's national play 45 minutes, and he's pretty much out of the picture right now. But we're talking about Jordan Pifak, who at one point you said would have been a shoe-in. We're talking about Haji Wright, who's been nowhere to be found. Josh Sargent, who I still have a lot of faith in, but can't seem to stay healthy, and that seems to be an issue. To think that Ricardo Pepe couldn't have been part of that, yeah, yeah, that's something. I think your best argument is the fact that Jesus Ferreira started against Netherlands. I think that's yeah. your best argument for saying that Ricardo Pepe is the bigger snub uh, between these two. That's 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 the worst indictment, I think, of, of the nine yeah. pool there and Greg Berhalter's decision. I'm going to go with Santiago Jimenez here for a couple of reasons. One, I just can't help but remember Tata Martino's logic, her or, or lack there of logic when it was talking about Santiago Jimenez. Remember, it was a lot of goals, but in very few minutes. As if that's a bad thing. As if a as right. if a striker's productivity, a player's bad efficiency, um, is a bad thing. I just remember that is the logic behind Tata Martino's decision, and it hurts. And then you think about Herc about the players that went instead, there you right? Go. And I think that's also there the case go. for the United States. You think of the guys who went instead, and that's that's how you really know whether it was a bad snub or not. Um, I know a lot of people want to focus on Rogelio Funes Mori, and and there's a discussion to be had there. The guy played. Basically, the last four minutes of the game against Saudi Arabia, you know, why take him? But beyond that, I really think we have to go back and remember just the kind of physical condition that Raul Jimenez was in. Hernia. Uh, yeah. Because we, we see now it's a player who, who did have something, right? You know what Tata Martino was maybe holding out hope for. But in that time, there were reports just before the World Cup that Raul Jimenez was on crutches. And Tata Martino kind of rolled the dice with that rather than take Santiago Jimenez. And to me, the kind of bottom line, aside from current form, because I think since then, Santiago Jimenez has, has been better than Pepe. Um, but the bottom line here is, is the, the future of the Mexican national team, Herc, was mortgaged. You know, this is your guy for 2026, maybe for 2030. I don't know that about Pepe. Maybe it is with Pepe. Maybe he'll overtake Balogun. But with Mexico, it, it is Santiago Jimenez. And not taking him wasn't just a snub for 2022. It's going to have massive ramifications for 2026. And that's why, to me, Santiago Jimenez uh, is just that slight bit bigger snub than, than Ricardo Pepe. Yeah, when we talk about the future, keep in mind that the Mexican national team will not have one player under the age of 25 with World Cup experience in the next World Cup. 
That's right, not one single player. And the one player they have today that plays at an elite level, that plays for the world to see, that could command a massive transfer fee come next summer, is Santi Jimenez. And not even his own national team or national team coach at that time in Tata Martino rated him enough to take him over a guy who played four minutes and a guy who was too hurt to really participate in the way that he should have. And if you look at that Argentina game, do you remember who played up top? Do you remember who played up top? It was Chucky Lozano and it was Alexis Vega. Mm. It, it, it makes no sense. You're right. A guy like Santi Jimenez could have been very, very useful. There you have it. Santiago Jimenez and Ricardo Pepe absent from the 2022 World Cup. We hope we see them in 2026. Our look back at the 2022 World Cup continues here on Football Americas with an eye towards Canada, who qualified for their first World Cup in 36 years, only to be eliminated in the group phase. And the year since has not been any easier. They had a financial crisis at the Federation level, one that cost them games. They had to skip the September window and maybe a manager, John Herdman, leaving for Toronto FC in MLS. Herc, what do we make of where the Canadian men's team is one year after they made history at the Qatar World Cup? Shambles, right? And it's shambles not because of what we know about Canada historically, because that doesn't give you too much to talk about, but because of what they did pre-World Cup. They were the best team in CONCACAF. I mean, statistically, they were the number one team in CONCACAF. You look at a team that ran through CONCACAF in the way they did. First time in a World Cup qualifying cycle that any team gets points off Mexico and the U.S. in Mexico and the U.S. in the same World Cup cycle. And in the way they did it, they were bossing teams around. I mean, they played against the U.S. men's national team, bossed them around. They played against Mexico in the Azteca, bossed them around. Beat them both times, both teams when they played in Canada. And then you look at what they did in the World Cup, and yes, they flopped, Seb. But I think that's been a bit harsh on them. They played mm -hmm. in a very difficult group. The opening game against uh, Belgium, the golden generation of Belgium, they should have won. Alfonso Davies misses a penalty kick. They don't win. And then they're in the most difficult group, a group that has the golden generation of Belgium, uh, a World Cup runner-up in, in Croatia, and, and a team in Croatia and Morocco that end up making the semifinals. So I could understand them not doing well, but it's everything after. It's 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 a, being a shadow of themselves. It's, it's being so bad at a federational level, at the ground level, that, that their own coach, John Herman, jumps ship. It, it, mm. It's unrecognizable what this Canadian national team is today. Think about it. You qualify for your first World Cup in 36 years, and you might miss out on Copa America. I mean, that would be devastating for all the growth that happened uh, in 2022 for Canadian men's soccer. To, to lose a Copa America, which is not a home Copa America, but kind of for all intents and purposes it is, uh, would be a footballing tragedy. They, they cannot miss out. They probably won't. They're going to get Trinidad and Tobago in that one-game playoff, they should get in. What's weird about Canada, Herc, here is they have still the elite talents, right? Yeah. they still got the Jonathan Davids. they still got the Alfonso Davies, they still got the Tejan Buchanans, guys who are elite, certainly when we talk about CONCACAF. Um, the big change is the manager, right? Is John Herdman's gone. If you're telling me that the Canadian program is going to drop off when Herdman leaves, you're telling me it was kind of a fluke. Do you think, do you think that, that what we saw from Canada at the last World Cup qualifying cycle was was a fluke or can it be sustained without Herdman in charge? Uh, no, you still need a good coach in charge and it doesn't mean, you know, that life after Herdman is going to mean they're going to be terrible. I think this player pool is suffice enough for them to, it's suffice for them to 
be competitive. I, I mean, you mentioned a few guys. You, you didn't mention Kyle Laren. You didn't mention Stefan Estacchio. You didn't mention, you know, a, a goalkeeper like Maxime Capot. You didn't mention some players like Michael, you know, Alice, um, what's his name? The place for Celtic, excuse me, his, his name is escaping right now. Um, Alistair John, uh, uh, you know, in the back line. Alistair Johnson, yes. Alistair Johnson, thank you. Thank you so much. They're, they've got some quality players all over the field. Certainly enough to be competitive in this region, Seb. And that's the crazy thing. It's you don't know what Canada you're going to get. Are you going to get the Canada goes into Jamaica and in Jamaica beats them and, and it's convincing? Or are you going to get the Canada that plays the U.S. and, and looks flat, that at home against Jamaica allows, allows them to come back and get into mm. the game and, and roll them over at home. So they're in this position. And that's the that's sad thing about this Canadian national team. But it's a direct reflection of their federation and where their federation is. Yeah. I, I don't know what to expect. But with this player pool, it should be enough. Yeah. With the World Cup coming up and, you know, at least a part of it in Canada, you would have thought, like, okay, this is going to be a, a, a team that's going to be at the top level of CONCACAF for a while, right? They were set up to, if not overtake the United States and Mexico, at least challenge, at least be that third team. Now, I would say, where we sit, you could make the argument, you know, Panama's, if not caught them catching up, Jamaica's certainly yes, catching up. Absolutely. Like, Canada's not... I don't think Canada's where they were a year ago in terms of, oh, we're competing with the best in CONCACAF. Now it's, we got to look down. We got to look at the teams behind us and worry about who's catching up to us. And that's, that's not where you want to be as a program. It's not where you want to be, but is it, it is a testament to a Panama who is not the same Panama after the, their golden generation. They finally make a World Cup in 2018. There was a, a rebuild, if you will, of the program, and it's rebuilt. They're competitive. A Jamaican national team that the player pool is as strong as it's ever been. For Canada, they're looking around, and they see the growth. They were part of that growth, but they see the growth from the rest as well. All right, so uh, we'll leave it there for the uh, first of our holiday specials here on Football Americas, our one year on look back at the 2022 World Cup. Herc, it is the, the holiday season. You got a, a festive greeting for our viewers here? Uh, bah humbug. And we'll see you guys next bah year. Bah humbug. Oh, well, I would like to thank everybody for watching with us throughout the se year uh, and the seasons as well. Been uh, great to have you with I love us you here guys. on Football Where's Americas. Gifts, we will be back uh, on Thursday with our next special, Herc. Our next special is your winter transfer window Ooh. wish list. So get the big bucks out over there, all right, big spender? We're talking winter transfers next time up here on Football Americas.